Ah, there we go. You can turn with me to uh, John 15. Uh, it was read earlier, uh, John 15, as we look at uh, this passage together and then gather around the Lord's table and then uh, continue in song. John 15, uh, verse 18. I will do my best to try not to be done when I'm normally done, which means I would have an hour and 10 minutes. I got to remember a different service time means different service ending time. Uh, And then I'm up here earlier because of communion. So I'll try to remember all that. You try to pay attention. I only have five pages, so and and that's that's not a lot. I promise you. Uh, so it shouldn't be long. But let me let me pray, and then we'll look at John, fifteen eighteen uh, together. Let's pray. Father God, we we're grateful uh, for the Redeemer. We're, fa- we're grateful for Father, Son, and Spirit that we can gather and worship in the name uh, of our God, the Triune God. Father, we pray now as we consider Jesus's final words to his disciples. And we consider his words and their implications for us that you would help us uh, to be prepared. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Some of you know this. Uh, I don't do it all the time, but I love going on backpacking trips. Some of you have gone on backpacking trips. It's different from hiking. So hiking, you go for the day. Backpacking is multiple days of hiking, right? And you've got to bring all your food. And you've got to bring your shelter, maybe a tent, maybe a hammock. And uh, you've got to figure out how you're getting back if it's, if it's not a loop. There, there's a little more involved. And I just enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy kind of planning the trip. I enjoy doing the trip. I've done not a lot of these, but I've done some uh, back home in New England uh, and, and some uh, other, other places. Hopefully, at the end of this month, so the end of this month, uh, Jared Bigler and I, some of you will know Jared, uh, are planning on going on a backpacking trip. We're going to spend two or three days, well, two days, kind of full days, in uh, a national forest, uh, 18 miles along a river, and then cross the river, and then come back. Uh, We were planning the trip uh, just the other day, and I said, you know, do you have a tent that uh, that we both can stay in because I don't have a tent that you'd want to carry for any length of time. I have the big like eight person one. And and he kind of hesitated and he said, well, I was planning on bringing in a hammock. And I thought, OK, uh, I'll find a hammock. Right. So I, I just love the planning, the seeing it come together to figure it. But you, you got to know where you're going. You've got to have a map. You've got to know what trail you're on. You've got to know how much elevation gain there's going to be. How many meals are you packing for? You want to have enough food, but you don't want to bring extra food because you've got to carry it the whole time, right? You want to have enough clothes to be warm, to be dry, whatever the weather demands, but you don't want to have too many clothes because you're just going to carry them for no reason. And if you've ever done hiking and done that, it's no fun, right? So you've got to be prepared. And preparation is packing the right thing, but preparation is also kind of knowing what, it, what are you going to expect, uh, I haven't looked at the trail that he's planning for us to go on, but I know it's on the, along a river. And I know it's in, uh, in Michigan, right? It's not in the Upper Peninsula, Lower Peninsula. So I know it's not a lot of elevation gain, right? Because we're following a river, unless there's tons of waterfalls that I don't know about uh, in this national forest. So you've got you to know what to expect. Jesus here wants us to know what, what to expect. You've got to know what to expect so that you can be prepared. 
Jesus wants to prepare his disciples. And he says good preparation isn't just for his departure, but also for the world's hatred. We've talked a lot about Jesus departing and sending the Spirit and all that they need to know about that. But he says there's another part of the preparation. And so Jesus is preparing them and he's preparing us, telling us, okay, you need to be prepared for some opposition. You need to be prepared for some hatred. He says, in effect, this is what you're going to face. This is how to get ready for what is coming. I'm not just leaving, but you are also going to be hated. Of course, preparation matters. It matters when you're backpacking. It matters as Christians. It mattered for Jesus' first disciples, and it matters for us today. And of course, as cultural winds shift and swirl, we need Jesus' words. We need Jesus' final words. We need to be prepared for what he says is coming, is here, what we're going to experience, what's coming down the trail, as it were. So what does Jesus tell his disciples What does he want them to know? What do they need to pack? What do we need to pack, if you will, on this this journey? I want to look with you at this section. We've been in this section for a long time now, uh, looking at Jesus's final words in John 14, 15 and 16. And then we'll look at his high priestly prayer in John 17 in the weeks to come. But in our passage, we want to consider it around three points. Let me give them to you and then we'll step through them. First, what causes hatred of Jesus's disciples? You got to know what causes hatred of Jesus's disciples. Secondly, how then, how then can Jesus's disciples tell the world about him? And then third, how then do Jesus' disciples respond to hatred? So let's consider first, what causes hatred of Jesus' disciples? You say hatred. That's a strong word. That's the word Jesus uses, isn't it? Jesus says hatred. Look at the beginning of verse 18. The world hates you. Look at the end of verse 19. Therefore, the world hates you. He talks not just about hatred, but actually about persecution. Look down at verse 20. In the middle there, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. They will be hated. He wants them to be prepared. And we know from the book of Acts, we know from church history, Christians, his disciples have been persecuted. Many were martyred. Many suffered. Before we go in our passage, I think we have to stop and say, well, what about us? Right? Are we hated as Christians? Are we persecuted as Christians? Of course, one can hate Christians and not persecute them. Right? I think that's important to to note. Uh, On the whole, I think we would have to say we're not persecuted. Otherwise, you have to really kind of redefine that. And but I think there are examples. Examples exist, right? You think of a Christian uh, florist or a Christian baker who refuses to use their creative skills to celebrate a homosexual so-called marriage. But that persecution of Christians for living as Christians, I don't think is the norm, at least not yet. And, And they're sometimes winning in court, right? Praise praise the Lord. 
So if not persecution, what, what about what about hatred? As we feel, and I mentioned this earlier, the kind of cultural winds shifting, but also swirling on many issues, right? Issues of of race or gender or sexuality or marriage. And as as we feel, I think at times, especially mocked or marginalized as the popular culture disciples us to celebrate sin. We, we feel that, right? But I think we would also say that it's likely, at least, that an Orthodox Jew or a Mormon or a principled political conservative would feel those things, too. Right. Would feel that marginalization at the very least. So do Jesus's words of warning still apply in those examples? I think so. Would we feel more hated if we didn't live in Lapeer County, if we weren't in the Midwest? Would we feel more hated if we were Christians living in Seattle or in Boston? I think so. I think we would feel it more. Would we feel more hated if we were more bold living here? I think so. So what might this hatred look like? For you or for I today, living here, living, living now. I'll give some examples. If you have other examples, I'd love to hear them. I think we want to think through this carefully. I think it is real. Perhaps they're thinking we're just, I mean, they might not say it stupid, right? For making supernatural claims that Jesus lived and died and then rose again. Or that God spoke the world into existence a few thousand years ago in six 24-hour days. Or, or maybe they think we're rude for Im- imposing these claims, these truth claims on others. Maybe they think we're bigoted because of our views on gender or sexuality or, or marriage. Perhaps they think we're arrogant for making absolute truth claims For saying things like Jesus is the only way? Perhaps, perhaps we don't go along with them, their sexual sin, with their crassness. Perhaps because we speak up at work, we refuse to cut corners or to lie to save face or to celebrate sin. Maybe you can think of other examples the cause or examples of, of hatred. So what causes this? We feel it at times. If we lived in a different context, maybe we'd feel it more. If we were more bold, maybe we'd feel it more here now. But what, what causes this? I think Jesus tells us three things, three things that cause this here in verses 18 through 25. I want to step through each of them kind of in verse order. So first, we aren't one of them anymore. Right. What causes the hatred of us? We're not we're not one of them anymore. Look at look at verse 19. If you were of the world, that's what I mean by one of them. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus calls his disciples out of the world. We aren't one of them anymore. The world loves its own, and that's no longer us. They may say, 
that we think we're better than them. Of course, we're not. We talked about this last week, right? What is, what is the reason given in our verse? What was the reason given back in verse 16? He chose us, right? Not because we chose him. He chose us. So we should set the expectations for ourselves, for, I think, our children, for our grandchildren as they follow Christ. We should come alongside them and say that it's normal if you feel like an alien, right? If you feel like a pilgrim, if you feel like a stranger, not from here anymore. As we face hatred and feel the fact that we are not one of them anymore, when we feel odd at work, at school, we want to encourage one another to embrace our alien identity, our status as pilgrims. Maybe you could think about it this way, a slightly different way of getting at it. We live differently, right? We just live differently. Christians have always lived differently, and that is going to have implications for how at home we feel. Think about time and think about money. As a follower of Christ, we have the same seven days, but we give the first day of the week because we think it's the Lord's day. We have resources, same amount as those around us, no more, no less on average, and yet we give the first portion of that, the first fruits, gladly away to our master. That's going to put restraints on how we spend our weekends. That's going to put restraints on how we spend our discretionary income. We're different. We're going to feel different. You may have similar interests and hobbies as your co-workers. But it's going to be different because your greatest interest is Christ. It's going to change how you relate even to those things. Maybe consider spending some time this afternoon reading, reading 1 Peter. As Peter helps us reflect on what it means to live as pilgrims, to live as aliens, that we're not one of them anymore. Jesus gives a second cause of the world's hatred of his disciples. We are linked with him. We're linked with him. And he is the one they persecuted. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus' point in verse 20 is pretty simple. How they treat me is how they will treat you. We're linked with Jesus. We've been implicated with him. When I was uh, in high school... Uh, I went to a small Christian school, and we played other small Christian schools. Of course, in New England at the time, it seemed like that was the only version of Christian school. They were all fairly small. And we had, we had rivals. And I, I grew up uh, being a ball boy before I was on the soccer team, right? So I knew of the rivalries even before I was on the team, right? And so when you get there, it's different players, but it's still that same school. And so the rivalry remains, right? If you are in Lapeer and you follow football, you know a rival is, is Davison, and it's been for a long time. And it's not because of the individual players on Davison. It doesn't matter who's on Davison, right? It's a rival. It doesn't matter who the disciples is. The issue is the master, 
Right? That, that's what he's saying here. We're associated with him. We're linked with Jesus. So we shouldn't assume it's going to go any different for us. He's preparing his disciples. He's preparing us for the worst. Of course, he's going to the cross. It's Thursday night. Many hated Jesus. Some followed him. But we should expect the same, shouldn't we? It's not all persecution all the time. He says, some will keep my word and some will keep yours. They will listen, some. But remember, you're linked to Jesus and he is the one they crucified. How does this prepare you for that hard conversation with a coworker? How does that prepare you the next time you are able to talk with that loved, beloved family member about the gospel? Third, and really the foundational, the core cause of this hatred is this underlying hatred first for Jesus. That's the heart of the passage. It's where, it's where it begins. We see it, I think, three different places. So look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's a hatred for me, Jesus says, that is underneath and before. Look down at verse 21. But all these things they do to you on account of my name. Right? Then in verses 22 through 25, which I think if you read the passage in preparation for this morning might be a little confusing. It can be. But I think Jesus here is referring to Hatred is the word, but rejecting Jesus, the sin of rejecting Jesus is what Jesus, I think, has in mind here. He's not saying that they would have been sinless or they were sinless. Look down at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. That is the guilty of rejecting me. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So rejection of Jesus, Jesus says, is hatred of Jesus. It's hatred of the son and it's hatred of the father. And he says, verse 25, they have no grounds for this. They've hated me for no reason. There's no cause here. Jesus lived a a perfect life. And his perfection is an indictment on us. He was so meek, so wise, so righteous, so pure, so patient, so bold, so just, so holy. Perfection. He never sinned. So he alone is fundamentally hated for, for no reason. Maybe you've heard a friend or a family member say something like this. I don't dislike Jesus. It's just his followers I don't like. Well, first, we should say that Christians can be really annoying. And Christians still sin. Those things are true. They're important to affirm. But we also should say, okay, how do we square that claim I don't dislike Jesus, I just dislike his followers, with Jesus' words. Jesus says they hate his followers because they hate him. But they're saying they don't hate Jesus, just his followers. How do we put those things together? And I think, I think the answer with just a little reflection is fairly simple. 
The friend who says this doesn't know the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus that is palatable to them or us or any of us apart from saving grace in is, is not the Jesus of Scripture, right? Jesus is not palatable to us in our sin. We reject him in our sin. We don't seek after him. We don't want him. So the Jesus that they approve of is, is a Jesus of their understanding. But it's not the Jesus of Scripture. They don't love the true Jesus or they would love his followers. Isn't that what John says in his letter, right? In light of this hatred, let's consider now our second point. How then can Jesus' disciples tell the world about him? This is verse 26 and verse 27. How then? So you, you, you get the context here. Hated by the world, living as outsiders and strangers, embracing our alien status. We need help, right? We need Comfort after learning about our calling as those who have been called out of the world to be hated by the world. How are we going to go into the world with this mission? And here's the answer to this challenge that we feel as we try to be faithful in a world like this. Jesus is leaving. Hatred from the world is coming, but so is the spirit. Do you see? Jesus is leaving. Hatred is coming. He says to his disciples, but so is the spirit. We'll see this, I think, very clearly in verses 26 and 27. Let me read it again for you. Then in John 15, follow along, listen. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness Because you have been with me from the beginning. Before we talk about this idea, Jesus leaving, hatred from the world coming, but so is the spirit to enable us to bear witness. Before we talk about that, I want to just have a little bit of a kind of a bubble box to the side. Some of you have read books that have bubble boxes. My kids love books with bubble boxes. Not just paragraphs, but there's a little box over here, a little box over there. I was uh, talking to someone the other night. I loved those kind of books growing up. Guinness Book of World Records, you know, it's pictures, and then there's a little fact over here, and there's a little fact over here. So I want to just take a little aside, a little bubble box, and talk to you about the Trinity, because this, this passage that I just read is significant in our understanding of the Trinity, and especially of the Spirit. So Christians believe that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, and each person is fully God. This is called the Trinity. So this this neither blends the persons, no, they're distinct persons. Doesn't divide the essence, no, there is one God. Their glory is equal, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each person individually is God, yet there's not three gods but one. So let me ask this question, and then we'll see how this verse helps us answer this question. How then does the Bible distinguish the Father from the Son from the Spirit? So it doesn't deny one attribute. That's where we can be tempted to do that. Well, you know, the Spirit isn't this, but the Father is that. No, 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 no. They are, they are one. They are equal in essence, Right? There's one God, but that isn't how the distinction is made. 
This is how Christians have have long put it. Let Let me read this summary to you. The Father was neither made, nor created, nor begotten. Are you thinking, okay, check. Not created. He's God. He's eternal. Not made. Not begotten. That's the Son, isn't it? The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. Right? You should be nodding. Yeah, all right. The Father's not begotten. The Son's begotten. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeds from the Father and the Son. Did you, did you catch that word proceeds? It's in our verse. Look back at verse 26. When this helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. That's where that language is coming from. Proceeds. So in verse 26, the Spirit is sent out from the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. So Christians have long uh, kind of affirmed that the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son. So we could put it this way. The Spirit's personal, one God exists in three persons, the Spirit's personal mode of existing is to proceed from the Father and the Son. And, as our passage says, His personal mode of acting, how He acts, is to proceed from the Father and the Son. So the Spirit isn't created, He isn't begotten. He proceeds from both the Father and the Son in eternity, and as Jesus promises here, in time, to His disciples. He's sent out to us. What a gift! That's the end of that little bubble. On the spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Some of you that know church history know that that led to the split between the East and the West. Significant doctrinally. Back to our passage though. How then can we, hated by the world, tell the world about Jesus? How is this going to go? I don't feel up to it. I know you don't feel up to it. How, how are we going to do this? Jesus' first disciples, us today. What are we going to do? You're leaving. Hatred's coming. Help. Jesus says the spirit is coming and he is the help that we need. He is the helper. The end of verse 26, he says, he that is the spirit will bear witness. This is legal language. He will testify about me. He will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth about me. And then in verse 27, we testify about Jesus. So the Spirit testifies about Jesus, and we testify about Jesus. So the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, joins with Jesus' disciples to testify about Him. By extension, I think we could say, Christians today tell the world about Jesus with the Spirit's help. This is how we can be hated at times and remain faithful. Be a witness. Be a true in our testimony regarding Jesus. So faithful Christian witness is deeply reliant on the Spirit's witness in and through us. Think of the provision Jesus's, Jesus made for his disciples and for us today in our, in our evangelism. We don't go it alone. Praise God. I feel really alone. When I have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, I just feel really alone. I feel tiny. I feel hesitant. I feel nervous. I can even think, man, I know the truth. And I, I, they're not going to ask me any question that I haven't heard. I still, that's not how I feel. 
That's not how I feel at all. But he gave us the spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the helper. We don't witness alone. We don't share the gospel alone. So how will this truth change your expectations the next time you share the gospel? Trying to be a witness. Well, guess what? The spirit's being a witness in that moment, in and through you. You're not alone. How does that help you prepare to be more faithful? And then third and finally, in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4a, we'll split verse 4 between this week and next. Third, how then do Jesus' disciples respond to hatred? How do we respond? Of course, this was written, as we've mentioned, to Jesus' disciples on the eve of his crucifixion for them first, right? So verse 2, he says, they will put you out of synagogues. I don't even know where the closest synagogue is. I'm not worried about being put out of any synagogues this week. I think you're good, right? Then he says, and they'll kill you in service of God. Wow. But look at the rest of verse two. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, speaking to his disciples, will think he is offering service to God. Right. Think of Paul. Paul wasn't persecuting the church as some sort of zealous atheist. No, he was a militant Jew persecuting the church in service of God. This is how D.A. Carson puts it, a commentator on this passage. I think it's really helpful. He says, whether in the first century or in the 20th century, or we could say the 21st century, Christians have often discovered that the most dangerous opposition comes not from careless pagans, but from zealous, uh, from the zealous. And he writes to religious uh, Uh, from those of various faiths and from other ideologues. Then he notes this. A sermon was preached when Cranmer was burned at the stake. Let that sink in, right? Christians have faced severe persecution performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and in the name of Jesus. So clearly, he's still talking about persecution, The chapter break does not mean a subject break. Now Jesus' focus is on how do we respond. Look back at chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I have said all these things. All that I've been telling you in the last few chapters, especially the verses that we just looked at. Preparing you for suffering. Preparing you for persecution. Why did he do this? Why the forewarning? Look at the end of verse one to keep you from falling away. Verse four continues this summarizes Jesus's exhortation, right? He calls it their hour that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them uh, that I told them to you. He refers to it as their hour, speaking of those who are persecuting his disciples because I think they think they have the upper hand. They have the majority. They have the power. They have popular culture. They have the wind in their favor, if you will. They have the entertainment industry. They have the academy. They have the university campus. They have the endowments. They they are the elite. It is their hour, so it seems. Look back at the beginning of verse 4. But I have said these things to you, just like he said up in verse one, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may 
remember. So how do Jesus' disciples respond? How do you and I respond when we are hated by the world? Remember. Remember what? Remember these things. Let me summarize it three ways. Not surprised. It's not about you and you're not alone. So when hatred comes, you remember these three things. You're not surprised. You've been forewarned. This is the norm. This is how it's always gone. Do you think you're greater than your master? Look how it went for him. That's how it's going to go for you. So you're not surprised. But then also know that you're not alone. Sorry, that it's, it's so not surprised. Not about you, right? They're rejecting Jesus. I was reading a, a book uh, by Ed Welch this week, and this sentence jumped out to me as I was reflecting on this passage. He said, God has determined that his people would not be marked by trouble-free lives but by how we trust him during good times and bad. So we're not surprised. We remember it's not about me. It's not about you. They're rejecting Jesus. It's him they hated first. And we're not alone. He's given us the helper. Jesus died in our place. We've been freed from our sin. So death isn't the greatest threat to us. It's falling away. And so we live reliant on him, trusting in his grace. We remain faithful as we rely on the Spirit who is given to us, and we don't go it alone. Friends, the, the hatred that we've talked a little bit about this morning, and what you faced this last month or what you might face this next month might be a different flavor. It'll be different in a year. But the hatred that Jesus' disciples have, have always faced, that we learned about this morning, I just want to warn you, I want to warn myself, may not look at all like what we expect. When it comes, when their hour comes, oh man, it's not what I expected. I remember uh, talking to a friend, Jared, who pastors out in Salt Lake City. This was 10 years ago. And I remember he said, just in passing to me, he said, man, I never thought that as a pastor, if I would be imprisoned, it would be over sexuality. You know, growing up, you think it's going to be for the deity of Christ or something, something a little more like, and it's just over sexuality, right? My, if my pulpit is taken from me, I pray that it's not in this country. It's going to be over this, right? What you may face this week may not be what you expect. It may, it may come in a surprising way. And that's why we need to know Jesus's words. That's why we need to remember them, to internalize Jesus's words to his disciples so that we're ready then. So we don't pay attention to appearances and say, well, it's not what we expected. So it's not persecution. I must not being hated. That's not being being hated because it's not the way I anticipated. No, we're ready. We know Jesus warned. We've been forewarned. We're not surprised. And when it comes, we remember it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. They're rejecting him. And then we remember he's not left me alone. He's given me a helper. So I can remember his words and trust them. This is what you're going to need. If you're not going to cower, if you're not going to fall away. Friends, Jesus' words and these truths are the very preparation he knows we need in America in 2023.